very first thing that we need to do is just go ahead and define what the Apocrypha is. The word Apocrypha, uh, there's actually quite a few different documents that this could apply to, but typically when we talk about the Apocrypha, we're using that to describe these 15 additions to the Old Testament. And in the outline, I'm not going to go through it now, but I borrowed from another sermon that I once heard from a friend of mine, a summary of each of these books. If you want to look at that, you can get the outline afterwards. But here we'll just notice you've got First Ezra, First and Second Maccabees, Tobit, Judith, Additions to Esther, Susanna, Song of the Three Young Men, Bell and the Dragon. Those three right there, Susanna, Song of the Three Young Men, and Bell and the Dragon, are additions to the book of Daniel. Then we've got Wisdom of Solomon, Ecclesiasticus, Baruch, Epistle of Jeremiah, Prayer of Manasseh, and Second Esdras. I believe, if I remember correctly, all of these books through here, through Prayer of Manasseh, are in the Bibles used by, among the, the Catholic faith. Second Esdras is included among those in the Eastern Orthodox faith. Apocryphal, apocrypha really literally means things that are hidden. And so these books for a long time have been called apocryphal, but looking at it historically, we're not completely sure why that word was first used to describe these books or these writings. Some provide a positive reason. They say, well, they were considered things to be hidden because only the initiated, only the truly deep and spiritual could really read them and could understand them, so they should kind of be hidden away and reserved just for that elite few. But as, even as far back as we know, that it could have meant something a little more negative. Oh, they were hidden because they were heretical and spurious, and not to be trusted, and so they really ought to be hidden away. And we, we really don't know, historically speaking, why this word was chosen to describe these books. But either one of these could be the original reason. I think we're going to find that for us, it's reason number two. They are spurious. They are heretical. Now, there, there are several books with the Old Testament, with the New Testament, that could have this word apocryphal applied to them books that should be hidden away, things that aren't really Scripture. Uh, and yet, typically when we say the Apocrypha, we're referring very specifically to these 15 editions about which we disagree with the Roman Catholics and the Eastern Orthodox. So there's a generic sense of the term Apocryphal, and then there's the specific sense that we normally talk about. All the other books, the liberal critics try to tell us, oh, these could be Scripture, but nobody who's who studied them and really wants to serve the Lord questions any of the other books whether they should be added in. These are the ones that are discussed and argued about among the Catholic and Eastern Orthodox Protestant faiths and then with us. While we'll call them apocryphal, just so you'll know, I have to tell you this because some of the quotes use this word, and I've got it hyphenated here so you can see the two parts, deuterocanonical. The Catholics say that there were proto-canonical books and deuterocanonical books. Doesn't that sound amazing? Wouldn't you like to have those words in your vocabulary all the time? Basically what that means is canonized first and canonized second. Or canonized earlier or canonized later. You see, even with these names, the Catholic Church admits that these books, the deuterocanonical, were not considered canon as early as the rest of the books, which is a very interesting thing because we're talking about the Old Testament. We're not talking about them trying to decide which books ought to be in the New Testament. We're talking about books that were in the Old Testament. And right there is an admission that none of these books were considered canon until later. That's what that means, later canonized. So in some of the quotes, you'll see that word, deuterocanonical, which basically means the books that, that's what, how they refer to books that we call apocryphal. So that's what the apocrypha is, those extra books 
Should they really be there? Should we be reading them? Should we be studying them? Should we be learning from them? What I want us to do is we're going to take a look historically at how the Apocrypha was used, and then we're going to take a look at some reasons why we do not use those books. And hopefully that will help us out tonight. I said this morning that I'm going to do things a little bit differently because most of the scriptures I use on the slide... Because we're taking a look at something that, in my opinion, is really not biblical, sadly, throughout tonight's lesson, we're not going to be having a lot of Bible verses until we get to the end. We've got a a few points there. Mostly we're going to be looking at history and what the testimony of history says about these things because the fact is the Bible itself doesn't really say anything about the Apocrypha per se unless we apply those passages that we will at the end that talk about what all Scripture is and how these don't fit within that categorizing. All right, so let's move on here. What do we learn about the Apocrypha through history? The very first thing that we need to recognize, and I think this is of utmost importance, going to come in later in our lesson when we talk about why we don't use it. The very first key is we need to understand that the Apocrypha was not part of the Hebrew canon. And by that I mean the Jews, even in the time of Jesus, never used the Apocryphal books. They never considered them a part of the canon. Now, as we take a look at some comments, I'm going to share with you some quotes. I I want you to understand that every single one of the quotes that I'm going to use tonight that are critiquing, that I'm going to use to demonstrate we shouldn't use the Apocrypha, actually come from essays in these versions of the Apocrypha that I have in my library. We have here, and just so you'll know, I doubt you'll remember this as we keep going, but this is called the New Oxford Annotated Apocrypha. If at the bottom of the screen it says NOAA, the quote comes from this book. Okay. If it says NJB, it comes from the New Jerusalem Bible. All of these are equipped with essays that describe the Apocrypha. This is the New American Bible, the St. Joseph edition. If it says NAB at the bottom, it's coming from this. I hope you'll get the outline and study these quotes some more. But I didn't find books where people talked against the Apocrypha. What I'm going to show you tonight are things that are actually in these books of folks who are using the Apocrypha. And I think their own words stand as a testimony themselves that we shouldn't use them. Not a part of the Hebrew canon. Just consider some following statements. In the New Oxford Annotated Apocrypha, it says none of these books is included in the Hebrew canon of Holy Scripture. You can't get more plain than that. In the New American Bible, commenting on additions to Daniel, their essay says they are excluded from the Jewish canon of Scripture, but the church has always included them among the inspired writings. In the New Jerusalem Bible, they talk about Tobit and Judith were not accepted by the Hebrew Bible. I'm talking about the two books of Maccabees were not in the Jewish canon of Scripture, but their inspiration has been recognized by the church. That's in the New Jerusalem Bible and the essay on those books. In the New Jerusalem Bible, commenting on Ecclesiasticus, this book forms part of the Greek Bible, though it does not appear in the Jewish canon. Then talking about the book of Baruch, the New Jerusalem Bible says it is one of the deuterocanonical books not found in the Hebrew Bible. See, I told you we had to know that word. Deuterocanonical. But here's the important part. Not found in the Hebrew Bible. Alright? So, none of these were found in the Hebrew Bible. Commenting on the wisdom of Solomon, when the author quotes scripture, Scripture, it is from the Septuagint. Now, I included this one. This is a little more subtle. But this is interesting, because in just a moment, we're going to learn that these books... Let me just back up here. Notice this one, it says, this book formed part of the Greek Bible. So one of the things we're going to learn in just a moment is that these these books were added in to the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which is called the Septuagint. But I find it interesting that here's a book in the Apocrypha 
that when it quoted Scripture, it quoted from the Septuagint. What does that tell us about this book? That tells us that when the Septuagint, the original Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, was completed, this book wasn't even a part of that. It only entered the Septuagint later. Do you understand what, what the point there is? Once again, this was not a part of the Hebrew Bible, because when the Hebrew Bible was translated into the Greek, they had the Septuagint translation. Whoever wrote this, the Wisdom of Solomon, they were already using that Greek translation. Okay, so again, the point is not a part of the Hebrew Bible and not even a part of the Septuagint when it was originally translated. The second thing that I want us to recognize, Josephus denied the apocryphal books. Keep in mind that Josephus was a Jewish historian in the first century who chronicled the destruction of Jerusalem. So we're looking at the latter half of the first century. Even at that time, after the Septuagint was being used, after Jesus' life, as the New Testament canon was being established at this point, Josephus writes and demonstrates to us that the apocryphal books were not recognized by the Hebrews. Now, to understand this, I have to share some things with you about the Hebrew Bible. The Hebrew Bible, uh, the Old Testament, the way they used it, had different divisions than we have. If I were to ask you how many books in the Old Testament are there, what would you say? 39. Okay, we know that. The Hebrew Bible combined some of the books. Their number was a little bit different. The most common, the most common division for the Hebrew Bible we see here is divided in three parts. Keep this in mind because this is going to come up later in the lesson. Three parts. The Law, the Prophets, and the Writings. Remember that. Law, Prophets, and Writings. Often, when the Hebrews wanted to refer to the Scripture, they would call it the Law, the Prophets, and the Writings. Or sometimes they would use synecdoche and use the largest book in the Writings and say the Law, the Prophets, and the Psalms. In there, in what they called the Law, they had Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. In the Prophets, they had Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings... So you notice those, not first and second Samuel, not first and second Kings, just one book apiece, Samuel and Kings, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah, and the Twelve. The Twelve are what we call the minor prophets. The reason they're minor prophets is because initially they were all a part of one book called the Twelve. It is not because they're shorter than the rest of them. Because if you look, Hosea is longer than Daniel. It's because they were all a part of the Twelve. And we've just dubbed them the Minor Prophets. And then in the writing, they have Psalms, Job, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs, or Song of Solomon, Ruth, Lamentations, Daniel, Esther, Ezra, and Nehemiah were together as one book, and it ended with Chronicles. Keep that in mind also. We're going to refer back to this later when we talk about Jesus' testimony. First book for the Hebrews was Genesis. The last book was Chronicles. Okay? Not Malachi. Malachi was up here in the 12. The last book is Chronicles. Now, I've shown you this list. Because this is the most common list that you're going to see. And the way they divided up, they had 24 books. But sometimes the Jews would use a little bit different uh, uh, collation of the books, such that some, in, in some scrolls, Ruth was a part of Judges, and Lamentations was a part of Jeremiah. So Jeremiah and Lamentations came together, and Judges and Ruth came together. In this setup, you had 22 books. Now Josephus commented on what was the canon. All right? Listen to what he says. In his writing against Apion, he says, For we have not an innumerable multitude of books among us, disagreeing from and contradicting one another, but only 22 books, which contain the records of all the pastimes which are justly believed to be divine. You notice what he says there? 22 books. 
which accords exactly with what we have today. They had their different divisions. They combined some of their books. But this accords exactly with what you and I are using in our Old Testaments today. And there's no room, no room, for those additional apocryphal books. We're going to come back to this quote from Josephus later and learn a little bit more what he said about that. And it's going to open our eyes a little bit more. But I just want you to notice this. Josephus says 22 books. Now, let's, we're going to back up in time a little bit. And we're going to notice, as we said a moment ago, that even though the Hebrews didn't use it, and even up to the end of the first century, we know that Josephus claims the Jews didn't recognize it. Somewhere in that time, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the apocryphal books got added in to the Greek Bible, the Greek Old Testament. Okay? And that's important because for the first couple of centuries of Christianity after the New Testament, the Septuagint was the translation that the early Christians used. And they almost never, almost never look to distinguish between the Hebrew canon and what they had in the Greek Septuagint. And because of that, when we go back and we read what, what are called the early church fathers, Clement, Tertullian, some of these guys, they will quote from the Apocrypha. That's true. We can't deny that. Interestingly, no New Testament writer ever even once quoted from the Apocrypha. Not one time did a New Testament writer quote the Apocrypha. Now, we're going to be told, well, now, wait a minute, there are some allusions. I've taken a look at some of the allusions to Apocryphal writings, and what they are is statements about wisdom, like James says, be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. There is a statement in, I believe it was Ecclesiasticus, that's kind of similar to that. But that's just a point of wisdom. James didn't necessarily get that from Ecclesiastes. We don't know where he got it from. He may have gotten it from the Proverbs that repeatedly pointed out that we should be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. And so those allusions, even those who, who try to push the Apocrypha recognize that, well, we think they might be allusions. This might be where they got it from, but we just don't know. What we do know is there's never once a direct quote in the New Testament from the Apocryphal books. Post-New Testament, some of those Christians did because they did not distinguish between Hebrew canon and Greek canon. However, about the 4th century A.D., the Christian scholars began to recognize the difference between the Septuagint and the Hebrew canon. And those who noticed the difference started to make a difference. In fact, Jerome, considered to be the greatest scholar among the Christians during the 4th century, the one who established the Latin Vulgate. The Latin Vulgate is the standard Latin translation of the Bible, Old and New Testament. Jerome included the apocryphal books. And that is why our Catholic friends will say, see, all the way back here, they were using these books. But Jerome very explicitly annotated every difference between the Greek and the Hebrew canon and said that those apocryphal books, while helpful, while of value, should not be viewed as inspired Scripture. In his Latin Vulgate that was passed out to the churches, they had that, they knew what he said. The problem was the Latin copyists, over time, as more and more of those got copied, those annotations started getting dropped out. But that's they found uh, copies of... Uh, old manuscripts, and they discovered that Jerome said these were not Scripture, even though they had them bound together. It's an interesting thing. Because of that, 
there were times when local councils gave assent to the apocryphal books. For instance, in 393, there was a synod that met in Hippo. In 397, there was one that met in Carthage. Those localized groups met and said, yes, these are inspired scripture. But it's very important to note that those were localized. They were not viewed as universal church-wide. It was not the church universal, the entire group of Christians all over the world saying, yes, this is what we believe. They were local groups. It would be like a couple of churches that got together in Franklin and decided, yep, here in Franklin we're going to consider these apocryphal books as Scripture. You've got to understand that because you're going to have folks that tell you, look, all the way back in 393, the Catholic Church was saying that these were Scripture. And the problem with that is, at this point, government of the, the visible church was not centered in Rome yet at this time. Roman Catholicism was really not formed yet. It was coming. Uh, Rome was considered important, but there was no pope at the time. Uh, these were local councils. In fact, it was not until April the 8th, 1546, in the Council of Trent, that the first Roman Catholic declaration, declaration that was supposed to be viewed as a church-wide, all-over Roman Catholic decision, that the Apocrypha was considered inspired. That's the first time that there was a, quote, church-wide declaration that the Apocrypha was supposed to be considered Scripture by Catholics. Now, throughout that time, different folks believed different things. Some people used it as Scripture, some people didn't. In fact, even at this debate, even when they had this council, there were folks among the, the College of Cardinals that disagreed and said it shouldn't be used, but they got outvoted. And the Catholic Church adopted it then officially as Scripture. And so I want you to see here, when we are told by our friends, oh, the Apocrypha was always a part of the Bible up until the Reformation, we're only getting part of the story. It is true that for a long time, most of the copies of the Bibles that were printed and bound contained the Apocrypha, but a great majority of the people said, well, it's helpful, it's valuable, it's good for what they would say ecclesiastical use. We might use it and read it and learn from it, but it's not Scripture. It's not divine. It shouldn't be placed alongside everything else with the same kind of authority. A statement to that effect was not made until this time right here, in 1546. It is true that the Apocrypha was finally excised for most of our Bibles during the Reformation, but it actually had a very interesting history there because when Martin Luther initially translated and bound his German copy of the Bible, he included the Apocrypha. But he had it at the back, and it said, good stuff, helpful, useful, but it's not a part of Scripture. However, they began to run into problems because there were some things that they were debating with the Catholic Church. Remember, Martin Luther left most mostly because of purgatory and the indulgences. And there was a passage in 2 Maccabees, chapter 12, verses 43 through 45, that, that seemed to lend some credence to the idea of purgatory and indulgences. And so in the Reformation, the Reformers began to realize, we've got to figure out which books are, are authorized. If these are part of the Bible, then we're going to have to start using them and believing them. If they're not, we just need to get rid of them. Have you ever heard a preacher say that, you know, you've got to be careful with those little headings that are in your Bible? You've got to be careful when you get those study Bible and you get those notes at the bottom because if you're not careful, you'll begin to believe that those are just as much the Bible as the actual Bible text. Well, what the Reformers were recognizing is that's exactly the problem we're having. We can keep putting this Apocrypha in and we can keep putting our notes that it's not really a part of Scripture, but there are a whole lot of people that no matter how much we say it's not really a part of Scripture, it's not really a part of Scripture, they still see it as part of Scripture. And so what's the solution there? We're just going to have to cut it out. And as early as 1599, there are copies they found of Geneva Bibles where the Apocrypha is cut out. 
And from that point, that became the increasing norm. Until today, Bibles, uh, the only Bibles that contain the Apocrypha are those that are used by the Catholic Church and by the Eastern Orthodox. We go to the Bible store, very few of them are going to have the Apocrypha in them at all because of that difference. So, so this is how the Apocrypha was used. But what do we learn from it? Yes, Apocrypha was often found in the binding together with the Scripture. But a lot of the time, there were notes saying this is not supposed to be a part of Scripture. It's useful. It's helpful. We can read it in the churches. And I'm not saying that was a wise decision for them, but I do think we need to understand, even while it was bound together, uh, throughout these years, many people recognized this is not a part of the Scripture. Why don't we use it? We don't use it. Why not? Well, the very first reason we've already established, because the Hebrews didn't use it. If we're going to get our Old Testament, it would seem to me that we ought to get the one that the folks who put the Old Testament together use. Why would we go in later and add in more books that they didn't even recognize as canon? The second thing is the fact that there are many problems and errors in the Apocrypha. And again, I want to share with you several quotes. All of these come from those three books that I just showed you a moment ago. In the New Oxford Annotated Apocrypha, it says, ostensibly historical, but actually quite imaginative, are the books of Tobit, Judith, Susanna, and Bell and the Dragon, which may be called moralistic novels. Now, does that sound like inspired scripture to you? Ostensibly historical, but really quite imaginative? In the New American Bible, the book of Tobit, named after its principal hero, combines specifically Jewish piety and morality with Oriental folklore in a fascinating story. Now, does that sound like Scripture to you? Combining morality and piety with folklore? In the American Bible, commenting on Judith, it says, any attempt to read the book directly against the backdrop of Jewish history in relation to the empires of the ancient world is bound to fail. Now, see, this is one of the places where our Bible, as we use it, stands up head and shoulders above all other books that have claimed to be inspired by God. Every time the Bible has been challenged and history has been able to reveal anything about what is taught here, the Bible has always come out on top. Always. But the Apocrypha, well, here we've got this book, Judith. You really can't read it in the backdrop of the history that's gone on. In fact, we have another quote this time. I believe this one's from the New Jerusalem Bible. It says, The book of Judith shows a bland indifference to history and geography. The scene is set in the time of, notice the quote, Nebuchadnezzar who reigned over the Assyrians in the great city of Nineveh. That comes from Judith 1.1. But Nebuchadnezzar was king over the Babylonians, and Nineveh had been destroyed by Nabopolassar, his father. So here we've got Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Judith as a king over a country that's already destroyed. That just doesn't work. Additionally, as we keep on in the quote, it says, Despite this, return from the exile under Cyrus is regarded as having taken place already. Judith 4.3, Judith 5.19 in the New Jerusalem Bible. How does that happen? We realize, number one, Nebuchadnezzar was not king over Assyria. He was king over Babylon. Nineveh had been destroyed. Additionally, the return under Cyrus happens 70 years later. You can't have all this happening at the same time. A bland indifference to history and geography, indeed. But very interestingly, there's not another book in our Bible that that can be said about. I keep reading here in the New American Bible, commenting on Bell and the Dragon, which is an addition to Daniel. This story preserves the fiction of successive Median and Persian rule. Now, does that sound like anything that should be considered Scripture? This preserves a fiction of a successive Median and Persian rule. 
Commenting on the additions to Esther, the additions are clearly intrusive and secondary, for they contradict the Hebrew at a number of points. Very interestingly, I'll just throw this in for you for free. The issue with these additions to Esther is that even as, as our Bibles have them today, a lot of folks have a lot of problem with Esther because the book of Esther never once mentions God. In fact, the book of Esther, out of all the books of the Bible, seems to be the most secular. And I believe there's a reason for that. I believe that the reason for that is that the book of Esther is supposed to demonstrate the providence of God. It's supposed to be something where we see God everywhere and nowhere, and that demonstrates to us that in the working of the world, God is there even when we don't see Him. But a lot of the, a lot of the folks had a real problem with that. And they saw that as a problem. So there are these additions that are added that show prayers of Esther and prayers of Manasseh and, and the name of God is used, uh, I mean, dozens of times just in these short additions as if to try to correct what they saw as a problem with the original. Well, what do they say, though? Well, when you look at it, it didn't really correct anything. Instead, it's intrusive and secondary and it contradicts what we have in the Hebrew. Does that sound like something that should be a part of our Scripture? Commenting on the book of Baruch, certainly Baruch himself would not have made the numerous mistakes t- contained in Baruch chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. Now, brethren, you tell me, should we count as Scripture something that contains fiction and fable, something that contains folklore, something that's filled with mistakes, something that can't get the history and the geography right at all, that we already know was not even viewed as canon by the Hebrews? Why would we take things that are filled with such errors and suddenly say, you know what, we're going to add them into the canon when the folks who put that canon together didn't even recognize it? That just doesn't make sense to me. Thirdly, the Apocrypha itself demonstrates that during the time that these Apocryphal books were written, there weren't any prophets. And we know what Scripture is. Scripture is men moved by God writing by the power of the Holy Spirit. Prophets. This quote is from Josephus. Notice what he says. It is true. This goes back to that quote we started earlier. Remember when he said there were only 22 books? It's almost as if he is arguing against Appion regarding these Apocryphal books themselves. Because he said there were only 22. And then he moves on and says, It is true that our history hath been written since Artaxerxes very particularly, but hath not been esteemed of the like authority with the former by our forefathers. Why? Because there hath not been an exact succession of prophets since that time. What is Josephus saying? He's saying there weren't any prophets. After the time of Nehemiah when Malachi was written, there weren't any prophets. And so even though there are some good books about our history, and they've been written very particularly, we've never viewed them as having the same authority as those other books. He goes on to say, And how firmly we have given credit to these books of our own nation is evident by what we do. For during so many ages as have already passed, no one has been so bold as either to add anything to them, to take anything from them, or to make any change in them. He said, those 22 books, which equals the 39 we have, he said, None of the Jewish brethren have been so bold as to add more books to them. Why would we? But it has become natural to all Jews immediately and from their very birth to esteem these books to contain divine doctrines and to persist in them and if occasion be willingly to die for them. Those same books that we have in our Old Testament, Josephus says we won't add to them, we won't take away from them, we won't change them. Have we heard anything like that before in our sermons? They say we won't add to them, we won't take away from them, we'll change them, and we'll die for them. So those other books, they contain some good history. They help us out a lot. I mean, those are great words from Josephus, who himself is writing history. But that's all they are. They're history. They're historical books. They're not Scripture. And our fathers have never 
granted them the same authority as they gave those 22 books that we consider to be divine. Never once. But it's not just Josephus who demonstrates there's no prophets. Listen, this is a quote from the essay in the introduction of the new Oxford Annotated Apocrypha. I have a hard time remembering that one. New Oxford Annotated Apocrypha. They have an essay that introduces it, and I just thought this quote was amazing. Despite the diversity of literary form, most of which are parallel to or developments from similar genres in the Old Testament, the attentive reader of the Apocrypha will be struck by the absence of the prophetic elements. From first to last, these books bear testimony to the assertion of the Jewish historian Josephus that the exact succession of the prophets had been broken after the close of the Hebrew canon. This, that's, that's from this right here. This is not from somebody who's opposed to the Apocrypha. This is from somebody who's translating the Apocrypha and using it and calls it part of the Bible. Absence of prophecy. There's testimony to what Josephus said that after the Hebrew canon was closed, and see, we've already learned none of these are in the Hebrew canon, that the lineage of prophets ceased. And of course, because Malachi told them, we're going to be looking for another prophet down the road. And we know who that was, right? Elijah or John the Baptist. But between that time, there weren't any prophets. But now here's something very interesting. Even within one of the apocryphal books itself, in 1 Maccabees, there are three references that demonstrate that they had no prophets. Here in 1 Maccabees chapter 4, verse 45 through 46, it says, They tore down the altar and stored the stones in a convenient place on the temple hill until a prophet should come to tell what to do with them. They knew a prophet was coming. Of course they knew it. Malachi said it was. But he wasn't there right now. And they're going to wait for a prophet because there wasn't a prophet during this time. 1 Maccabees 9, verse 27. So there was great distress in Israel, such as had not been since the time that prophets ceased to appear among them. Chapter 14, verse 41. The Jews and their priests have resolved that Simon should be their leader and high priest forever until a trustworthy prophet should arise. We don't have one. The line of prophets has been broken. Well, what is Scripture? Scripture is the writing of prophets. Scripture is the writing of those who have received prophecy from God. They're moved by the Holy Spirit and they write it. If you don't have a prophet, you may have a nice book. It may be helpful. In fact, 1 Maccabees is a great book. One of these days we're going to have a study on Between the Testaments and you know where we're going to learn most of our history for some of that? It's going to come from 1 Maccabees because it's a great historical book. But it is not Scripture. Adding it into the Bible would be like taking your history textbook from school and adding it to the Bible. Just because it's got good history there and, and just because it's telling us things that happened doesn't mean it came from God. And the Maccabees, the guy who was writing Maccabees obviously understood that because three times he points out there aren't any prophets. Why would we think something different? Finally, the testimony of Jesus. For we who are Christians, Jesus as the head of our church is the end-all, be-all to deciding this point. Do you remember those quotes that we had uh, from the New Jerusalem Bible and the New American Bible where they said repeatedly, now this book wasn't a part of the Hebrew canon, but the church has recognized it as inspired. You see, among the Roman Catholic faith, the concept is that the church itself reigns supreme, that it makes the decisions and it's infallible when it makes these decisions of faith and doctrine and, and morality. And so when they say the church 
has accepted is inspired, for them that's enough. That's good enough. If the church decided it, it must be true. Because that's their faith. I think we need to have a different standard. The church doesn't get to decide anything. The church merely gets to listen to what our head, Jesus Christ, has decided. And when we take a look at the words of Jesus found in New Testament Scripture, we find that Jesus Himself placed His stamp upon the Hebrew canon. And there are a couple of subtle clues that I'm going to share with you that demonstrate that. First of all, let's understand Jesus' view of Scripture. In John chapter 10 and verse 35, as He's arguing with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, just as a side point, He made the point that Scripture cannot be broken. Jesus placed a strong emphasis on Scripture. It's the Word of God. It has to be used as the Word of God, and it cannot be broken. That's how important the Scriptures were to Jesus. Now, what did He do with Scripture? There's a couple of statements that now with the historical background we have, we ought to be able to see what they mean, even though before we probably just read over them without even thinking about it. Both of them are found in Luke. In Luke chapter 24 and verse 44, as Jesus is talking to his apostles about what had happened to him and what was going to happen after his, this is after his resurrection, he said, everything written about me in, notice this, law of Moses, prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. You remember what we learned about the Hebrew canon just moments ago? The Hebrew canon, the Hebrews looked at their canon as a threefold revelation of law, prophets, and and writings. Sometimes they refer to the writings by the major book it was a part of, in the Psalms, the biggest book. That's called Synecdoche. It's a figure of speech. It's used all the time. Law, prophets, and writings. Jesus, Jesus used this phrase because it was understood by the Hebrews to refer to their canon. Law, prophets, writings. What did Jesus say? Everything that was testified about me in the law, the prophets, and the writings must be fulfilled. That is like Jesus' stamp of approval on the Hebrew understanding of Scripture. There's another very interesting statement earlier in Luke, chapter 11, verse 51. He talks about the Pharisees, who of course were going to kill him, who were going to kill the apostles, who were going to cause all kinds of problems. And he was saying that the blood of all the prophets, all the saints, are going to be laid at your feet. From Abel to Zechariah. Now for us, because of the way it translates, we might have just always thought that what he meant was the blood from A to Z. From beginning to end, Alpha and Omega, but that's not what it means. Do you remember what we pointed out? What's the first book in Hebrew canon? Genesis. What's the last book in Hebrew canon? Not Malachi. Chronicles. Who was the first martyr in Genesis? Abel. Who was the last martyr in Chronicles? Zechariah. See, Jesus here is not saying the blood of all the prophets from A to Z is going to be laid at your feet. He's saying the blood of all the prophets from Genesis to, what we would say, from Genesis to Malachi, because that's our order. But he was saying from Genesis to Chronicles, from the beginning to the end of the Hebrew canon. No room for any additional books afterwards. No room for First and Second Ezra and Maccabees to come after that. From Genesis to Chronicles, from beginning to end of the Old Testament. That's it. So Jesus, who said Scripture cannot be broken, gave us these clues as to what He viewed as Scripture. And He placed His stamp of approval on the Hebrew canon. And as far as I'm concerned, that's enough for me. If that's what Jesus called Scripture, then that's what is Scripture. Because as Jesus said in John 15 and verse 20, the servant is not above the Master. If this is what the Master viewed as Scripture, why would I view anything else? Why would I add anything else to it? Therefore, 
we do not use the Apocrypha. I hope that this has been beneficial to you. If you think that I've missed something or misunderstood something, please feel free to talk with me about it. I'd love to talk with you about that. But I think we've demonstrated that we shouldn't use the Apocrypha, that it really hasn't always been used by everybody in Scripture, despite what we're told over and over again, and we shouldn't use it either. And in fact, it was a wise decision to completely remove it because the mere fact that it kept being bound together caused a lot of people to think that it was Scripture, even though the testimony of history, of the Bible, uh, is, is overwhelmingly against its use.